right, well, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, good to see you all come together and to worship. We are uh, beginning a new series here on the life of Abraham where we will be taking a, an in-depth look and studying together the gospel according to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 or 12 to around Genesis 17. And one of the reasons that we chose to look at the life of Abraham is that we want to continue to follow and to explore this spiritual focus and theme that we believe God is calling us as a church to pursue, which is being called to Christ and called to serve. And one of the ways to look at what does it mean to be called to Christ is to look at one of the forefathers in the faith in the call to Abraham. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 12. If you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. I'm going to read from Genesis 12 verses 1 to 9. This is God's word. Pray that your hearts and your minds would be open here today. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. Well, as I mentioned, we're starting this new series to continue to explore what it means to be called to Christ and therefore pushed out and called to serve our neighbor, our church, our friends and family. And as we begin this series, we're going to consider and explore what is the calling in your life, both individually but also collectively, look like as we try to apply and explore one of the forefathers of our faith, Abraham. He's one of the oldest and most famous, arguably, Old Testament person, Abraham. He's known as Father Abraham if you've grown up in the church. Many people sort of take him as the forefather of their spiritual religion. So as Lawrence Richards has once said, Abraham stands as the greatest figure to be found in the ancient world. Three world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, They all revere him as the father of their faiths. And one of the reasons we all do this, even though I believe Christianity has the right marking on him, is that Abraham models the faith for you and I. Faith and obedience, how to navigate the complexities of living in a foreign land, but knowing that your home is in heaven. How do we deal with culture? How do we engage with those who are non-believers? How do we understand our roles and jobs and family? And Abraham gives us a fundamental picture of what that may look like. Abraham is a story of new beginnings, a new creation, a new land, a new family. 
It shows us that in life, there are ups and downs. There are unexpected terms. There are sometimes a sense in which you move two steps forward and one step back. There's sometimes where you feel like you're limping along in life because it's difficult. But how do you hold on to what looks like invisible promises of God when you see the world around you so visibly not resonating consistent with all the blessings that God promises you? How do you deal with that in your life? Abraham has a picture, gives us a picture of all of that in this world. And so that's why as we explore what it means to be called to Christ and called to serve, Abraham shows us the beginning of what that looks like as a father of this religion. And so Genesis 12 is a well-known passage. It's a deep and thick theological passage. We could spend weeks on this, but I'm going to try to boil down some intimate and intricate theological truths, but make it practical for your daily life. And there are three perspectives that we're going to look at in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. God comes to Abraham, establishes relationship, tells him to leave his country. Three things that we could learn about this calling. One, the calling comes in what we call a covenant. God establishes a relationship in a covenant. Secondly, in this covenant, God gives Abraham a calling, a commandment. You know, you leave your country, go out there into the world. And then thirdly, God promises, I'm going to give you blessings and riches beyond your wildest imagination. So when we look at the beginning of Abraham's journey, there are three things that you notice. God establishes a covenant, he gives him a calling, and then he promises a blessing. So let's dialogue and hopefully we can explore and learn about this together. So first, God establishes a covenant. Now that word sounds formal, but it's not a theological word, it's more of a legal word. You know, it's a word that is out there in the culture and in the business world with the law firms. But in the Bible, the covenant carries the same meaning, but essentially, it's the organizing principle that illustrates and arranges our theology as well as our practice as a church of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the covenant. It's fundamental to our understanding of Scripture, of our worship, of our missions, of our church. It's fundamental, fundamental to our explanation and clarity and understanding of God and sin and salvation, our hope in heaven. You know, the, the doctrine of the covenant is so essential to Reformed theology that it's hard to overstate its importance. You know, even in the Bible, did you know that the Bible is broken up into the Old Testament and the New Testament and that that word testament is also translating the Greek word for covenant? So you can look at your Bible and say, there's the old covenant and then there's a new covenant. But what in the world is a covenant? As we explore this with Abraham, well, I don't know if I'm sort of dating myself. I don't know if the generation, the younger generation these days use this sort of phrase. But I remember that when there was a guy and a girl that started a friendship, and that friendship started escalating and evolving into something more than a friendship, you started thinking about the girl a lot. You wondered, does she think about me? There's butterflies in your stomach. You're wondering if there's a romantic attraction. Is this something that possibly could be monogamous? You have all these questions, and it's exciting, but you're uncertain, and that uncertainty also brought a little bit of excitement to the relationship. So what did you do back then? You had a DTR. You defined the relationship as awkward as it could be. Are we together? Do you like me in the same way that I like you? You want to be my girlfriend? You want to be my boyfriend? You got to define the relationship. 
And when God comes to Abraham, he says, I'm going to define the relationship through a covenant. That's how he wants to define it. And this is basically what a covenant really is. It's God defining the relationship between himself and his people. And it's really simple. The covenant on its most basic level means there's two parties define the relationship. There's going to be conditions, requirements for the relationship saying, you got to just date me, you have to marry me. Now don't go uh, committing adultery with someone else. And the covenant also has consequences. It means if you're obedient, there's blessings. If you fail and disobedient, there are curses. It's as simple as that. All of us are in covenant relationship with God, but also one another, especially if you're married. There are two parties, there are conditions, and there is a promise of blessing or a promise of curse. And that's essentially what a covenant is. That's what God has done with Abraham and with you and I. But more formally, you could define covenant. Susan Hunt in her book, Heirs of the Covenant, says this. It's a binding agreement with specific terms. That's the most basic in general. O. Palmer Robertson in The Christ of the Covenants defines it a little bit more theologically and says a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered because there has to be a sacrifice, which we'll get to. When God enters into a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. So he's in a relationship, he defined it for us. But here's what I want to do. This first point is going to be somewhat like a Bible study because there is basically two covenants, but the one we're going to look at has different expressions. You know, throughout history in the Bible, there are different expressions of the one covenant of grace. And so if you can imagine this, I want to take you on a tour. You know, imagine that I'm your tour guide. Let's just go for a leisurely walk. And along this leisurely walk, similar to Christmas, when you walk by the neighborhoods and each house has a different setup of lights and different Christmas ornaments on the lawn, I want to be your tour guide and I want us to go just for a leisurely walk. And on this walk, we're going to look at different houses. And on these houses, there's going to be a different covenant. And we're going to look and explore the different emphases and different beauties of every covenant that we see in the Bible. And so we'll just highlight it very briefly. And so maybe we could begin this walk from the beginning. And we start here and realize that in the Garden of Eden, God made his first relationship. He defined the relationship first with this guy named Adam. It's the first covenant in Genesis 2.17. That's the beginning. Two parties, God and Adam. There's conditions. Don't eat of that fruit. And if you obey, you get heaven. If you fail, I'm kicking you out east of Eden, John Steinbeck. That's what we're going to look at. That's the first relationship that God entered into. And if you know the story, Adam, what did he do? He failed. So he got kicked out, and therefore there were flaming swords that said, you can never come back into the sanctuary, into the city of God, because Adam failed and broke the covenant. But this is the beauty. God was so gracious and says, okay, Adam, you jacked this up, but I'm not giving up on you. And he entered into a second relationship in Genesis 3.15, a second covenant. And this is what 3.15 says. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he enters into this relationship and says, okay, now there's sin and brokenness. I'm going to hold to my promise. I still want to be in relationship with people. But because Adam messed it up, I'm going to have to do something about this in a covenant of grace sending my son Jesus to bruise the head of the serpent, which is Satan, even though Satan will bruise Jesus' heel upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you didn't know this, Genesis 1 to 3 was heaven. It was bliss. 
Once Adam broke the covenant, humanity and culture for the next eight chapters were spiraling down into the sin and the depths of their humanity and chaos. It was absolutely horrendous. Humanity was the worst that it had ever been in the history of humanity. And at one point in this story, as we move along in this leisurely journey, let's move on to the second house or the second covenant, you come to this guy named Noah, and God says, I'm going to do another relationship with Noah. You guys know the story, Noah? Evil is so bad on the land, God says, I'm just going to start over and wipe off all humanity and send this radical flood that kills everyone except Noah, because he's going to build this big boat put all his family and all these animals and birds to start new culture and new Eden, a new harmony of land with my man Noah. That comes to us in Genesis 6, verse 18. God says this to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then after they wandered into, or sailed rather, in that ark for 40 days, they come out, he builds an ark, and what do they do? He says, God says, this covenant is now ratified. My relationship, we defined it again. And what did he do? Something really cute. God sent the rainbow. Did you know every time you look at the rainbow, God made that for Noah. And do you know what that covenant meant? God said, as evil as the world can be, I promise in this relationship, I'm never going to wipe out humanity with a flood. I'm never going to eradicate humanity because of their sin using a flood. And what happened after Noah? Humanity basically continued to spiral down. There's evil after evil. They needed a savior. They needed a judge. They needed a king. So you can think about Genesis in this way. 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters is really the preamble to the rest of Genesis chapters 12 to 50 in the whole Bible. The creation account in Genesis 1 to 3, God blesses humanity in the Garden of Eden. It was heaven. After Adam broke the covenant, Genesis 3 through 11 is about corruption and a spiraling down and devastation of life. Then God enters into this covenant with Noah and says, here's the rainbow, I promise never to flood the world again. And that pushes us forward to the next sort of monument that we see on this leisurely walk. Where do we go after that? Adam, Noah, then we come to Father Abraham, which is our passage here today. This is a covenant of promise. He's saying, I'm having the same relationship. Let me give you a different angle. He's saying, I'm not giving up. The world is spiraling down. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on humanity. And he says, this is a covenant. This is how I want our relationship to be. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Two people, God and Abraham, conditions, leave your homeland, and there's promise of blessing and also a curse. This here in Genesis 12, 1 to 2, is really another hope. God said to, Abra- said to Adam in the garden, you can have heaven and eternal bliss, but he jacked it up. Then he goes over to Noah and says, I promise with the rainbow, I'm never going to wipe out humanity again. And you push forward to Genesis 12, and he says to Abraham, You know what I promised to Adam? He messed it up, but I'm going to promise what I give to Adam. I'm going to promise to you, Abraham, a new land, a new humanity, a new community, a new hope. This is essentially what we have in this new relationship in the Abrahamic covenant. The scholar Gordon Wenhelm has said this, 
The promises to Abraham renew the vision for humanity set out in Genesis 1 to 2. This is like a second creation account, a second Eden, a second promise. There will be a new world with a new land and a new people as numerous as the stars. You can see this even in the text. Verse 1, that word for said, the Lord said, is the same word in Genesis 1 when he created the world and said, God said this and God said that. It's the same world. Because as one commentator, Bruce Walkie, has said, the same word that summoned the cosmos into existence now summons Abraham to bring a nation into existence. Does that make sense? He's recreating the universe. He's recreating the promise. Do you know why? Because God doesn't give up on you. He did it, he did it to Adam. He messed it up. He did it to Noah in the big rainbow of the culture and the wide world. But now he's doing it again to Abraham and say, you're still sinning, you're still rebellious, but Father Abraham, we're going to create a new world culture here together. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And the story of Abraham, friends, of promising new land and people, that basically runs throughout the rest of Genesis and all the way over into the book of Revelation. So let's look at this leisurely walk. We're not going to go into the other ones as much detail. But if you like beginnings, we look at what they call the covenant with Adam. If you like colors and art and realize how does culture exist in this world, how do we engage the world of arts and culture, let me walk you over to the covenant in Noah with a rainbow that splatters all the colors of culture and all the arts and liberal, liberal arts that we experience. And then you move over and say, I'm actually a guy who likes hope and promise. Then you might be like the Abrahamic covenant. And you move further along in the, later on in Exodus, and then you're saying, well, I'm more of a, a linguistic guy. I'm a lawyer. I want this relationship defined in a contract. Then you like the Mosaic Covenant, where Moses gives us the Ten Commandments. And then you move on a little bit ahead as we in this leisurely walk, and you're saying, I'm actually somebody who's very regal. I love to talk about kings and queens. And then we come to this guy named David in 2 Samuel 7, and that's the Davidic Covenant. And all these different covenants with different people are essentially pointing towards the final climactic relationship defined between God and us because there's a mediator named Jesus, and he's the mediator of the new covenant. What in the world does that mean? All these other covenants, all these other people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they all point to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Let me explain it this way. I normally don't do sports illustrations with specific teams because, one, I don't know much about sports, and sometimes you use sports illustrations and it just sort of segregates the congregation out. But I think this one may or may not hit to help you to understand why Jesus is the fulfillment of all the past covenants. In my humble opinion, the greatest athlete, not just the greatest basketball player, the greatest athlete of all time, is Michael Jordan. I'm not from Chicago. I'm from Kansas. But even then, I could say the greatest athlete of all time, not just the greatest basketball player, is Michael Jordan. Now think about this with me for a second. In theological terms, he's the archetype. He's the eschatological. That means the greatest, the final athlete of greatness. This is why, think about some of the greatest sports athletes in every sport that you could think of. Maybe it'll be somebody like Michael Phelps for swimming. Maybe it'll be somebody like Tom Brady for football. 
Maybe it'll be Tiger Woods for golf. But when you think about comparisons, all ESPN and whatnot, when you take Tiger Woods, for example, what do they say about him? He's the Michael Jordan of golf. They never say that Michael Jordan, he's a Tiger Woods of basketball. They said during the Olympics, Michael Phelps, he's the Michael Jordan of swimming. They never say Michael Jordan is the Michael Phelps of basketball. Even Tom Brady, as great as he is, perhaps the greatest quarterback of all time, he's known as the Michael Jordan of football. Do you know why? Because the pinnacle, the greatest, the greatest expression of athletic greatness above all sports is going to be Jordan. He is the example that everything else points towards. He's the architectonic, the archetype, the theological, the eschatological, the antitype of athletic greatness. He is the best that everything else points towards. In that same way, every covenant that we've seen here, every person that God defined the relationship with, points towards their fulfillment to the true and better person in Jesus Christ. Adam, he failed the test. He pointed to the true and better Adam in Jesus, who was also in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and he passed the test. Noah, Jesus is the true and better Noah. Noah saved people who were attached to him in the ark through the flood of the waters. He points to the true and better Jesus, who saved you and me by attaching us by faith in union with Jesus through the ark of the cross, and he saved us through the floods of our very own sin. Abraham, Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God and left home, not from Ur of the Chaldeans, but from heaven, and he came down to this world to create a new humanity and give us a new land and kingdom of God. Moses, Jesus is true and better Moses. Moses brought down the Ten Commandments. Jesus obeyed them and fulfilled them. Moses revealed the law. Jesus revealed himself. King David. David pointed to the true and better David in Jesus Christ a king who would reign in peace and prosperity and righteousness and holiness, a a king where David actually committed adultery, Jesus was faithful to his wife, even though the wife, the church of Jesus, was unfaithful to him. Every one of these covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus because every one of these guys that God defined the relationship, relationship with, they all failed. Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham failed, Moses failed, King David failed. And that's how God enters into this relationship with you and us, that we are in this covenant relationship with God, fulfilled by Jesus Christ who obeyed everything, and he earned everything, and he gave it all to you, and all the blessing and grace. Now, one missionary has said it this way, just think about Adam and Jesus. In the garden, Adam had it all. In his sin, he lost it all. Jesus came onto the scene, he fixed it all so that you and I can receive it all. That is the covenant relationship. We still fail God. We still sin. We still commit spiritual adultery. But because Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, he has fulfilled everything else in the past and has given you all those blessings here today by our faith and union in him. And that begins in this promise, this recreation of a new humanity in the Abrahamic covenant. That's all point one. Let's move on to point two, and these are much quicker. These are basically applications. So in this covenant, we have this relationship, and God gives Abraham a calling, and he gives you a calling as well. Let's read this in verse one. This is God's calling, his commandment. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land that I'll show you. This is a radical calling, friends, because what he's actually, what God is telling Abraham is basically this. Essentially, leave your home, leave your family, leave your inheritance. That's the father's house. Now, Abraham, this, if he, he followed it right away, it's a tremendous amount of faith. That's why he is father Abraham. Why was it so radical for Abraham to follow this? Well, first of all, Abraham was 75 years old. And yeah, I know they grew, they lived a little bit longer back in those days, but he's still 75 years old. And when God says, you're going to be a great nation and your descendants will inherit the land, Abraham's thinking, I'm 75 years old. And if you go back a couple of verses in chapter 11, verse 30, what does this say about Abraham's wife? Sarah was barren. So how in the world is Abraham supposed to follow God's promise and say, you're going to be having descendants that will inherit the land as numerous as the stars when they had infertility issues? Now, here's the funny point about genealogies and fertility in the book of Genesis. One of the reasons that genealogies are in the Bible is to remind us that God's continuous blessing through generation after generation. He's faithful. He's continuous. He's an infinite fountain of blessing that goes through the generations. And that's one of the purposes of genealogies. Blessing after blessing after blessing through line after line of line of genealogies. So when chapter 11, verse 30, it says, Now Sarah was barren. It's almost as if there's a screeching halt. There's a slamming of the brakes to God's grace and his blessing of the people. How in the world is God going to accomplish this? Derek Kidner, this one commentary, commentator says, The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us there's no foreseeable future. There's no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over. And then God speaks in the Abraham covenant, and there's hope again. But Abraham had to follow this. How in the world do we have descendants? And think about this as well. It says, leave your home country. Do you know Abraham's home country? Well, in chapter 11, verse 31, the home country for Abraham was Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. That was their original starting point. Do you know what Ur is like? At that point, in one point in history, Ur was the apex of civilization. Ur had the equivalent of saying New York, London, or Paris. And what God's telling Abraham to do is this. God will show, God's telling Abraham, leave New York City and go to this unknown country that's not developed. It's sort of saying, leave Los Angeles, leave San Francisco, and go out into the deserts of Nevada. I'm not talking about Vegas, but the actual desert. That's what it's like. Would you ever leave all this culture, all the ability to produce business and money and follow this one promise of God to go into an unknown culture that basically is flatland and desert? That's why it's a remarkable act of faith by Abraham. Friends, Church of Jesus Christ, what about you? We have more than what Abraham did. We saw the fulfillment of the promises. You remember Jesus fulfilled it all? What about you? You have more than what Abraham has. And he left everything to follow the calling of God. What about you to follow Christ and to be called to serve? What is your act of faith? That's the hard-pressing truth. Maybe you and I could dialogue about this a little bit. A little bit uncomfortable, but that's okay. Church sometimes is a little bit uncomfortable. That word go in verse 1 is also translated leave. It's a strong word. It means literally leave by yourself. Completely disassociate yourself 
from your people, your home, your inheritance. John Calvin has once said, he translates verse 1, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes. That's the act of faith of Abraham. What about you? What about me? That's the hard truth. What does it mean to hold on to the promises fulfilled in Jesus to show that your identity and your values are kingdom-oriented, not worldly-oriented? And what does that look like in the expression of your faith? It may mean that you go on to missions, like Missionary Dave, to leave your homeland, to leave your culture, to leave your world, to go on to mission field. It may mean that. But it also could mean on a smaller level to go out of your comfort zone to go out of your security. Some people, to follow the call of God, you got to go across the globe to the other side of the earth. Some of you, to follow the call of God means that you go to the other side of the fellowship hall to greet a newcomer. Some of you, it means to follow the call of God means that you come out of your security and your comfort zone. That may mean your relationships, your service and gifts, your time, your schedule. It may mean financial resources, that you stretch yourself financially because we are a very successful sort of church on the worldly standard. There's so many ways to apply this that you have to pray and consider, what does it mean for me to go and to follow? That's where the rubber hits the road, especially in light of the fact that we see Jesus, he left his home country to come down to earth, to take on human flesh to save you and me. And he's the fulfillment of all that Abraham was promised because Abraham couldn't do it perfectly. Tim Keller says this. God actually says to Abram, get out. And Abram says, where? God says, I'll show you later. Just go. Later on in the Genesis story, he's going to say, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abram says, how? God says, I'll show you later. Just trust. Finally, God says, go to the top of the mountain and put your son Isaac to death. And Abram says, why, God? And God tells him, I'll show you later. Just climb. That's Christianity. You can't plan everything else. You plan out everything in every detail in the Christian life. Sometimes you take a step of faith because you're walking by the promises of God and not the realities of what you see. That's why the Apostle Paul says you walk by faith and not by sight. This upcoming year, called to Christ, called to serve, I want to challenge all of you just to consider a little bit. Start small, just a little bit. What is God calling you to do? Maybe it's going to church on Sundays 50% of the year. It should be 100, but some of you may start small. Maybe it's 50% of the year. Maybe financially it's going to be for you, okay, I've given 1%. Maybe I'll give 2% this year. Take a stretch of faith. Maybe it's going to, be, going to be called, I'm going to actually commit to a community group. Friends, let me put this in perspective. David Platt has this book called Radical. Now, this may sound radical to you. This is actually basic Christianity. That's how inundated you and I are in our culture, to say that, to think that this is radical Christian living, to go to church 50% of the Sundays and to give 2% over 1% or commit to a community group, that's not radical. I'm here to tell you that's basic Christianity that we're together struggling with and trying to grow in. What is your calling in life? Because Abraham, he is the model of the faith. Because in verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Go 
Verse 4, so Abraham went. He didn't fuss about it. He didn't complain. He didn't dialogue, say, God, my inheritance, God. He didn't say that. Lord said, go. So Abraham went. Succinct, simple, faithful. And then he went on a wild ride and a journey, which is what you and I are here today. It's a wild journey, verses 4 to 11. Verse 5, you know, it says in verses 4 to 11, verse 5, set out to go to the land. Verse 5, they came to the land. Verse 6, they passed through the land. Verse 6, Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, I will give this land. Verse 8, he moved to the hill country. Verse 9, must be a tired guy at age 75. Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. He's journeying through this world. You know why? Because his identity at home is not ultimately in Ur or Haran or Canaan. But for Abraham and you and me, our home is in heaven. Billy Graham once said, heaven is my home. I'm just passing along through this place. How do you hold on to the promises of God, follow his call, so you can be a blessing to the world? This leads us to our last point really quickly. The blessing. He defined the relationship in a covenant. He gave a calling to leave the country to have radical faith. And he gives a blessing. The word blessing in the first 11 chapters of Genesis was only there about five times. The word blessing in first three verses of chapter 12 was there five times. So you know there's an emphasis on blessing. This one commentator, F. Horace, says, blessing brings the power of life, the enhancement of life, the increase of it. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you that blessing. Abraham, you're going to be that blessing to others. You're going to be a channel of blessings to everyone. Abraham, your seed will be the blessing to all the nations. Your great, 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 great grandchild will be the blessing to all the nations. You have so many offspring because of the seed of the blessing that you have. Who is the seed of Abraham? It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Joshua. No, they all point towards the great one. The seed in Galatians 3.16 is this. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. See, the way that Jesus fulfilled the promises to Abraham to say, I'm going to give you the blessing of land and people, and through you, Abraham, you're going to bless the world. How does God use Abraham to bless the world? It went beyond Abraham's wildest imaginations because it just didn't go to Jewish people in Israel. It expanded out to the generations into the Gentile world. And the way that people were blessed was that the seed of Abraham in Jesus Christ would be the message that is shared to the ends of the earth, creating a new family Jew and Gentile, given a new land, not Disneyland, the kingdom of God. The one people of God in the fulfillment of Abraham's promise consists of two choirs, the Old Testament saints singing in anticipation of Jesus' suffering and glory, the New Testament saints singing in remembrance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we're all waiting for Jesus to come back, but we are one people with one land, all made possible through the inheritance that we've received in Jesus Christ. We are his family. Look around for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Do you want to see evidence of the fulfillment of this? Look to the person to your left. Look to the person to your right. We are Abraham's family. 
I don't know if they sing this song anymore. Hopefully it brings new light and clarity into this one song that we used to sing in children's ministry. Do you remember that song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. (laughs) Left arm. All right, everyone stand up. Let's do this together. I feel like the Asian church kind of tweaked it because, I don't know, later on it's like tilt your head, stick your tongue out, twirl around, add all kinds of silly things. That song is Genesis 12 and Galatians 3. That is what we have. And we'll have it fully in consummation when Jesus comes back and we'll see the eternity, vast sea of our brothers and sisters and family, the blessings of the nations, in the land of the kingdom of God that glows with the very glory of God, with Jesus Christ at its center. Call to Christ, call to serve. How will we respond? That is a challenge for 2023. Let's turn to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you so much because you give us all your blessing and grace And we've seen the full story of your plan to save a people for yourself. But we see that you're always defining relationships and you never gave up on us. You defined it with Adam and he sinned. You defined it with Noah and he sinned. You defined it with Abraham and he sinned. Moses and David. Us here today. But you never give up on us. You secured it for us. You give us yourself as the greatest blessing that we could have. Thank you, God. Heal us, restore us, help us to grow as a church of Jesus Christ. We love you with all our hearts and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.